I'll share with you what I think I'm going to be doing in this next little while. Been been trying to think of a good way to focus people on actually uh, achieving the the uh, uh, the potential of what their practice has and. I talk to people a lot about uh, thinking about both emptiness and uh, the idea that the self that you think you are really doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, so, but it occurs to me that, a re- that that these are both in a sort of uh, their. Uh, a negative. They are looking at what isn't rather than what is, and, and, and I wanted to put, I wanted to invert that and make it more positive. And so, I'm thinking I'm going to take the approach of uh, once you realize, and it does, it is pre, it does presuppose this that once you realize that the world that you think you live in is a fabrication of your mind and therefore empty. And once you realize that the self that you think you are or the soul that you feel like you have is uh, another fiction of the mind, then the positive side of that is to engage in the process of soul creation. In other words, to create the best facsimile of uh, the ideal soul that uh, you could be. And um, so... Well, could you say more about that? Yeah. Well, if we, if we look at what... If we look at those characteristics and functions that we naturally tend to attribute to a self or a soul, the characteristics, we usually we think that, that we have one soul, not, not many souls, each of us, and there's a sense of uh, permanence or continuity that we're the same self or soul that we always have been and will continue to be the same self or soul until we die. And uh, very significantly is there's this inescapable feeling, sense, and, and, and even rational analysis uh, of separateness that, that uh, this self that I am is somehow independent of and separate from everything else. Okay, so the, these are the characteristics that all human beings assume about their self-nature, and those are the same characteristics that are given the label "soul" in various other spiritual contexts or in in poetic contexts. And the other, so there's those three characteristics, and then there's two functions that we always attribute to the self and by extension to a soul. And that is that the self is who has experiences. The self is the experiencer. And the other is that the self is the doer and the intender. And of course, if you're the doer and you're also somehow separate from everything else, then you have this burden of free will and responsibility. So this is how we normally 
instinctively, naturally think of the soul. And through correct thinking and, and, and uh, analysis and just paying careful attention through insight, we do recognize that each of these characteristics, that one, in fact, uh, our bodies obviously an aggregate, our, our being is, is a combination of body and mind. We recognize the body is not one thing, the body is many, I mean, the, the mind is not one thing, the mind is many different processes um, occurring simultaneously and, and often in conflict with each other. And we can't find any self or soul outside of the body and mind. So we've lost that unity that we naturally tend to assume belongs to a self or a soul. And then there is a sense of permanence that, uh, you know, that we've always been the same person. But of course we can look and see that we're not. We haven't always been the same person. We won't always be the same person. And not only that, there's different personalities that come up in different situations. So that we're not even we're, we're not even the same person all the time on any given day. So that sense of uh, there, there being one permanent stable entity, and of course we do recognize that there is causality there. That what we are today is the result of what we have been in the past. And as they say, the child is the father to the man. And that principle does apply. But in terms of a sort of permanent uh, self or soul, we see that, that the self is entirely conditioned, uh, transitory, and as, the, uh, as is stated many times in the sutras, that that which arises due to causes and conditions is bound to pass away. And significantly, uh, this is repeated in the sutras as uh, this is described as a reaction of uh, men who had spent their lives as spiritual seekers trying to discover the true self when confronted with the, with the Buddhist teaching. And when the Dharma eye opened and they realized the truth, this is the words they said, is, ah, what anything that arises due to causes and conditions is subject to passing away. And so, you know, we, we recognize that that continuity is not there. And uh, the separateness, we also realize that that not only is our separate, when we begin to carefully examine, realize that the separateness is uh, is really arbitrary, that how we define and distinguish ourselves from everything else is not some sort of absolute, but it's rather an arbitrary distinction imposed by the mind. But further, we recognize that so long as we view ourselves as separate, the boundary between self and other than self becomes a battleground, becomes a struggle, and becomes the source of arising of desire and aversion, leading to all sorts of unwholesome actions and leading to suffering <coughs> of different kinds. And, uh, and as far as those two functions, through careful practices of insight, we see that the, the experiencer is really a fabrication of the mind, that in the act of seeing, there really is only the seeing, in the act of, of thinking, there really is only the thinking, uh, whatever we look at, that it's when the mind tells its own story of the self, for uh, and, and the story in which the self is the 
is the hero, then comes the apparent uh, experiencer. Uh, when we examine carefully with insight, we see that intentions arise and pass away. And sometimes there are multiple intentions in conflict with each other, and that there is no intender or decider, but rather these different mental processes that make us up, based on their own conditioning, interact with each other, and then at some point an intention arises with sufficient uh, strength and immutability that action comes out of it. And so there really is no intender. So knowing that, to create a soul would be to create, using the knowledge of what we really are, to, to create something that has unity, continuity, some degree of endurance. Uh, thirdly, as far as the separateness, to abandon separateness and to, to create ourselves as a kind of self or soul that comes from a place of oneness, of union, rather than as separateness. Uh, that uh, uh, And in terms of these functions, they take care of themselves. But if we succeed in creating a soul-like self in terms of these characteristics, then there will be, uh, there will be a distinctly different quality to uh, the the story the mind tells of the experiencer and the doer or intender. So the way that I see that this happens, and really all I'm proposing to do is to state explicitly what already is happening anyway. That in the process of meditation and in the process of uh, trying to practice the six perfections. We take all of these different mental processes uh, that our mind is an aggregate of, each of which has its own agenda and purpose, and which, each of which is conditioned by various past experiences, each of which functions on the basis of the belief that it is... Uh, it is serving a self and therefore is conditioned by that ignorance and also by desire and aversion. Now, we are this whole collection of mental processes. So if we can change that conditioning and if we can change that, that view so that all of these different processes are aligned towards the same goal and are conditioned by the same positive uh, uh, motivations, then inst instead of having a mind consisting of many parts, we'll achieve a kind of internal integration, a kind of personal integrity. Is that what um, unification of the mind refers to? That's what unification of the mind refers to. Unification of the mind that happens in meditation is where, through the training, all these different mental processes stop struggling with each other and all get on board for the same project, at least for the next hour or however it happens to be that you're sitting there. So that instead of having one part of your mind 
wanting to get up and go to the store, and another part of your mind wanting to watch TV, and another part of your mind wanting to have a nap, and another part of your mind wanting to have a sexual fantasy, and you're sitting there you know, trying to herd all these cats to go in the same direction and they don't want to. The mind becomes unified. And when every part of your mind is unified to the goal and process of sitting in meditation, then it becomes effortless. But likewise, can you imagine living your life where all of these different parts of your mind uh, have the same goal and purpose and, uh, and are coming from the same kind of motivation and where the motivation, rather than arising out of desire and aversion and the ignorant view of self and the reality of external things, instead the motivation arises out of uh, loving-kindness, compassion, generosity, so that all of these different parts of your mind, what runs their motor is, is, is loving-kindness, compassion, and generosity. And if the self that each of these mental processes believes that it is serving, the, the end and the goal it's serving, is not the well-being of this separate, isolated entity, but rather the well-being of the all, the one, the recognition that um, that rather than acting for the benefit of the ego self at the expense of others, that the others too are all the same self, and therefore uh, the goal of the function of the different parts of your mind is then is for the good not just of this body and this mind but of the larger self that includes everything and everyone else. If you cultivate that view and if you train yourself appropriately and if you overcome the, uh, the defilements, the past conditioning that you have that causes you to behave in certain ways, the wrong views that you hold to support those behaviors, then the different parts of your mind become unified. They coalesce. And you have something that is far closer to the single self or soul that you had always wishfully thought that you were anyway. In terms of of continuity and permanence, as a unified whole, although this self and soul that you are will continue to change and evolve over time, it won't be splintered. And the changes the changes will uh, progress in a, in a coherent way. You won't find that, you, that what you did in the past is creating harm for you in the present. What you're doing in the present is, is harming you in the future. But rather, there is the kind of uh, cohesive uh, continuity that you had always presupposed and wished for, but in fact when you look at your life it hasn't been there. You've always been, been throwing obstacles in your own path, and that ceases to be there. And then in terms of the sense of the self as separate, if we can overcome that, then uh, Instead of our life being a, a 
battleground on the boundary between self and other. And that's no longer necessary. And most of the causes of unwholesome actions and suffering have disappeared. And so what we would experience is a unified sense of self, a sense of the self that is uh, unified with whatever, however you want to think of it, the all, the divine, the Buddha nature, the true nature of reality, uh, the source of everything that is, uh, the universe in its wholeness, whatever, you know, I mean, all the different uh, spiritual traditions of the world have different ways of describing that, but they're all talking about the same thing. The higher self, the true self, it's coming to that place of, of no longer assuming the separateness uh, and this ego self that gives rise to uh, all of our problems. So that's where that's where we try to go with that. Yes. What about um, practical means of bringing when you have these kinds of realizations or these experiences in meditation, bringing them into daily life? It seems like the the rocky point part is um, implementing these. Kind of things with your eyes um, where it's most difficult is where the the insight and the understanding isn't yet completely mature. But it's important to work on those rocky things because part of the maturation of the insight is extending it beyond uh, an experience of, of deep understanding to and uh, to the same experience in the world and in the rest of your life. So, uh, on the one hand, anything that you do, even, even if you only just kept returning to that same insight uh, in a meditative state, it will help to mature it and help to, and, and, and it becomes more and more natural that it will, it will uh, make the transition into your daily life. But to actively work on that, uh, when we go out into, when we have an insight and we go out into the world, when we get up, what takes over is our rational, logical thinking mind, which has created all this construct. And, uh, and of course, all of the unconscious information and ideas and thought processes that support the way we consciously think things are. And on the other hand, is all of our feelings and emotions by which we react to things, and that has its corresponding unconscious part, which is that unconscious sense of uh, who uh, of us as a separate self, as an ego. Right. So this is the problem. We have this. We have this understanding, and we get up and we turn the motor on to these powerful engines of the. Uh, the rational idea of what the world is and who we are, and the emotional uh, idea of what the relationship is between, uh, you know, the, the reality of ourself and the relationship between ourself and the world. So that's where that's what we have to work on, and we and we do that by bringing mindfulness into our daily life by bringing bringing the understanding and the recognition to the surface and examining what is going on. 
because there, if you recognize that there is no there is no part of you that's in charge that can force the other parts to behave. That can't happen. But as the other parts of yourself come to, to recognize and understand the truth of your insights, then they change themselves. And this is how you bring it about. So you have to bring your insights into the world in the form of insight and in the form of examining what you are thinking and what you are feeling and what you're saying and what you're doing and the consequences of those in terms of that insight. So if you have, if you have a, an experience uh, in meditation of being at one with everything and no longer in conflict and no longer uh, and, uh, you know, uh, in this place of struggle and dissatisfaction, and then afterwards, you find yourself back in the world once again, seeing yourself as separate, experiencing dissatisfaction, and moving into struggle. Then examine that in the light of the previous experience and bring them together. Um, at every level of understanding, whether it's just intellectual, or it's a deeper intuitive understanding, or whether it's some profound insight that comes to us uh, in a deep stage of meditation. Um, what, whatever our level of understanding is, we need to we need to bring that understanding into ordinary experience, and that's the function of mindfulness. You know, I, I've talked a lot of times about. Take something that's a problem in your life, or take the precepts and those that you have trouble keeping, or take the, or take the uh, practices of the perfections, and take, take one or more of the perfections that you would like to work on, and then whenever a circumstance arises that's specifically relevant to, to that problem in your behavior, or to that precept, or to that uh, perfection. Examine it with mindfulness in terms of okay, wh why? What is the source of of my uh, feelings, my thoughts, and my behaviors? What's the effect of them? Just just examine that, and that that will bring whatever level of understanding that you have at that point, whether it's from reading a book or whether it's it's some profound insight in meditation, is going to bring that level of understanding to bear on the present situation, and. That's where the changes come about. You know, when you see that that thinking and behaving in a particular way is is not serving you. I mean, basically, it's a, it's as as long as your ego self still exists and is functioning. As soon as it becomes obvious that a particular way of behaving and thinking is not serving you, that is going to tend to diminish the, the force of that thinking and behavior in the future. Now, very often there will be something else, you know, like I know that smoking cigarettes is bad for me, but on the other hand, it feels so good when I do it and so bad when I don't. It's really, you have two different things. And, and this is the this is the truth. We have these different parts of ourselves, and whichever whichever 
part or parts is strongest or can garner the most votes from the other parts of yourself is going to win. But the only way that you can change that is by bringing to bear the, this, uh, uh, this, the, the insight, the light of understanding. So this, these different parts of you change. People do quit smoking. Some event will happen which will bring it home. You know, and that's what they'll say. That such and such happened. And I just really brought it home how important it was that I really have to quit smoking. And so then they do. But up to that point, they were not able to. And we're really, in terms of all of our, uh, in, in, in terms of all of our self-destructive and otherwise harmful habits, in terms of all of our inabilities to keep precepts or to practice the perfections, exactly the same dynamic is going on. It's exactly the same as a smoker that would like to quit or a drinker that needs to quit. You know that these different processes uh, are not. You know they're they're going to require generating a level of understanding that <coughs> shifts the vote. <laughs> so that's how you work on yourself. But you told me once to focus on the transition, yeah. like state transition. I found that a real helpful mm -hmm. idea. Can you elaborate on that? Um, might be a bit much to go into right now. Okay. Okay, but uh, yeah. Bruce it's very tempting Bruce to go. Is leaving it at yeah, Bruce leaving has it. to leave at eleven. We're already. No, no. Um, that was it's an intention. Oh, it's an intention. Not a plan. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll leave when it's convenient for everyone. Okay. okay. So, yeah. Well, I, I really that's a good question. What I'd really like to do is go back to just uh, what you think of putting this in these positive terms. So what we're doing is we're working on ourselves. We're, you know, through using the six perfections as a tool that, you know, instead of, of talking about it and thinking about it exclusively in terms of there isn't really a self, everything is really empty, and all these sorts of negations that we talk about it in terms of the positive. Let's, let's make ourselves into whole, coherent, uh, psychophysical entities that uh, are... Uh, that are functioning in a way that is beneficial to us and to others. And with the recognition that to do that, what happens is the attachment to ego and to the personal self has to fall away. But it will fall away by itself through this recognition and through this understanding. And the result will be that we will enjoy an experience of, of of unification, of unity, of a kind of selfhood that while it still may not be the truth in an absolute sense or an ultimate sense, is a, uh, a much better, it's a much better projection than the ones that we're operating with at the moment. There is also one other thing about this. Uh, I'll see if I can just bring this to your attention briefly. And all these things I'm saying, this is what I'm going to be talking about on Thursday nights. So this is just kind of a, a warm-up and a practice for Thursday nights. But people often bring up the issue of reincarnation 
or rebirth? And what happens to myself after I die? And part of the notion of a self or a soul that we carry around with us is the desperate hope that uh, that is going to to persist and continue with the dissolution of uh, the body. And I, what actually happens uh, is more along the lines of this. If you can recognize, I mean, there's a number of other things you have to to understand first is that the distinction between mind and body is an illusion, and there's a lot we can say about that and have at different times. But uh, the, 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 the material and the mental are really of the same nature. And we all know how uh, within the realm of the material, absolutely everything is related to absolutely everything else. And the smallest event in the material realm has has incalculable consequences thereafter in the future. And as, as uh, they say uh, in chaos theory, when a butterfly flaps its wings in Hong Kong, uh, the result will be a thunderstorm in London. Right? Uh, and so on the level of material reality, we understand that interconnectedness. At the level of, the, of our mental reality, we feel that each of us is isolated, locked up in our own experiential selfhood and it's hard to see that that whatever that any thought that you have or any tension you have has ramifications in the future may be hard to see but if you can accept that the mental and the physical are the same stuff so that therefore whatever we see happening in the physical realm must also be reflected in the mental then you can see that just as the butterfly flapping its wings has huge consequences that can't be foreseen. Every thought and, and every intention that arises in your mind is not isolated and enclosed in, in a mind stream that is cut off when you die, but rather it likewise reverberates in the mental aspect of the stuff that is suchness. So now for an ordinary version of a human being, when the body and mind dissolve, the, uh, the karmic propensities that were formed by a lifetime tendency to hide in the shadows and snatch up the morsels dropped by others might be reborn as a cockroach, right? Whereas all of the other tendencies that make you up or any one of us up as a person may arise in different combinations in different kinds of ways. But the consequences unfold from what from what has been created in the course of your life. And uh, you know, I, I, it should be obvious that to say that you are reborn as a cockroach, there's no way that the self that you believe you are could actually be the self that is experienced by a cockroach. But you can see that, that the tendencies, the karmic tendencies that collectively make you up can reflect all kinds of different existences. Now, 
to the degree that your mind, that your psyche is disunified, different parts going in different directions, you can see that the consequences in after the dissolution of your body and mind, these, these are going to tend to go in different directions. To the degree to which the mental processes that make up your psyche are integrated and unified and functioning as a whole are going to tend to stay together. So that if you create a positive, wholesome, virtuous soul for yourself, a happy being living in a place of unity, when the body and the mind dissolve, the self that you by then know that you really weren't anyway doesn't continue, can't continue. But those karmic propensities will come into, will, will manifest in another or maybe even many other uh, beings in a positive way. So that if you, if you carry out this act of soul creation in your lifetime, that some other child may be born somewhere who basically, the way you inherit your parents' genes, they inherit your current propensities so that that child can quickly and easily overcome a lot of the defilements that you struggled for so long to overcome. And therefore, in, in that new being in that lifetime, with the karma that you have passed along, has the opportunity to go even farther than you did. And as I say, and they stay together as one or two or three. Or, I mean, uh, wasn't there some mention in that film we watched last night of a uh, girl reborn in what, 13 or 14 beings at the same time? I mean, there, there's, uh, there's, there's nothing to cause there's nothing to cause all of our karmic propensities to stay together as a unified whole. And if you're, if the soul you create is a big enough soul, it might actually pop up in a dozen places at once. So, and of course, if your true self is the oneness that you experience of everything, then that's what's going to be, you know, that that's that's going to be much closer to the rebirth and reincarnation that you might have wished for in, in a more ignorant state of mind. So that's what I mean by soul creation. Not only do we create something in our own life that is more soul-like, but we create something that is really worth passing along and being, uh, being inherited by future sentient beings of different forms. So that was my, that's my thoughts. Are your thoughts? Well, how do the um, the Tibetans believe that a whole entity is reborn into another? Is that correct? Um, the average Tibetan believes that. I don't believe any of the Lamas believe that. Mm. They know better, mm. or they should know better. But they recognize that that any uh, great being, uh, that those karmic propensities are going to be passed into the future. Mm. Also, in the case of, of Tilkus, what they do through through the use of the the 
oracles and other things, horoscopes and all that, is try to locate another being that has the right karmic, has inherited appropriate karmic predispositions so that with the right training that they can fulfill the role within society, within the monastery of the person that no longer exists because they've died. So this is this is a skillful application of understanding what really happens, a better understanding of what really happens in the transitions. So the average Tibetan would say, yes, you know, the the 16th karmapa is reincarnated as the 17th karmapa, and it's the same person. But the 17th karmapa knows that there is no sense at all in which they are the person that was the 16th. But they will know, if they do, to some degree, possess the appropriate uh, inclinations, and if the training they received has brought those to the fore, so that they can fulfill the role of being the next Karmapa in the world, or the next Dalai Lama in the world. Well, that's very hopeful. I mean, for all of us, then, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yes. And what I have described is something that is really arriving at the place uh, of, of being the stream enterer and working on the progression towards that. The, the sense of being, um, the sense of, of, of having a higher self, of being one with everything, is not the end of the road. There is still arhatship or full Buddhahood beyond that. But I figured let's uh, let's focus on what's uh, attainable and the tools that are available for getting there. So. So other feedback in terms of this is a game plan for the collection of people that are working together right now? I think it's a great idea. And the focus on the positive mm -hmm. um, also includes some of the earlier fruits like joy, equanimity, happiness. Yeah. And that's uh, been a little underemphasized mm -hmm. in some of what I've heard and read. Yeah, and, and that's the feeling that I have, that, you know, um, yeah, that, that, that too much emphasis on the negation and not enough on the positive side of where we're going uh, makes it more difficult to understand, for one thing, because uh, we're, we're negating what seems absolutely, totally obvious and inescapably true. You know, so it's already inherently hard to understand. And so if you don't have a clear idea of where you're going to get to by negating it, it's it, it just becomes that much harder. So let's focus on what you can get to by, by the process of understanding that your old ways of looking at things have been flawed, you know, have, have been illusions. Makes a lot. I, it seems to me like it's the way to make it a lot easier to, to see through those illusions and to let go of those things. 
Do you have any comments, Judy? Yeah, I, I think it's really, really good. I mean, I just like to stay on the road, actually. <laughs> but the, I w I've been reading um, Jack Cornfield, and he, he was saying how you reclaim, you know, and some people have to reclaim and heal and themselves before they can deconstruct themselves. Right. So it's, it's about the same type of thing, what you're saying. You're just using positive and negative. Yeah. I'm saying exactly the same thing that Jack Cornfield is saying. Although I think he is focused on an awful lot of the people that come to the Dharma anywhere in the world, but especially in North America, are people who are badly damaged and need a lot of healing. So they need a lot of healing before they... they can, yeah. okay. But the truth is, and this is, this is really what the Buddha said, because the Buddha wasn't making any distinction between the people that come to the Dharma with a lot of psychological problems and the people that come to the Dharma from a fantastic background. He said that, that all human beings living the way they do and seeing things the way they do are suffering from the same ailment. And so Jack's talking about the people that have slightly worse versions of the same disease, right? But we've all got the same problem. I mean, for some of us, they may they may be paralyzing, and for others, they may hardly bother us at all. But we're still all afflicted with the same disease, and that's what this is all about. Is is, is it's about healing ourselves, and it's about getting to that place of not just relative health, but of a, a, a greater health at a genuine spiritual level. So you can go back and read the same things in Jack Cornfield and see he's saying he's talking about the same thing, the same process. And and it it is, you know, getting well is really I think it is an our healing is an expression of the same kind of thought paradigm that I'm raising here. Instead of instead of just learning that there is no self and that everything is empty and that no matter what you do you're going to suffer. Let's let's think about what's going to happen. You know, that's like dwelling on all the, the the problems and the signs and symptoms. Let's dwell on what it's going to be like once you get over those. Yes, Bruce. I can share that some of the research that I've been doing. It emerged that the Theravadan approach, uh, which of course Jack and Mr. Susan and Goldstein represent in in America, uh, at the general nature of the solitary realizer, the arhat, one that attracts more people that, that are damaged uh, that, that are, than other Mahayana approaches. And that it's, it just tends to attract a, a more damaged people hmm. because of that orientation they have to their own problems. Mm -hmm. And that the arhat single real, soul realizer potential of that approach. But that doesn't mean there isn't hope. Oh, <laughs> no. and really, it's the, just the difference of approaches. But really, what's the same in in Theravada and Mahayana exactly is that once you have achieved this kind of let's call it healing or unification, once you've achieved it, then the next part of the path has to do, you know, you. you You've, you've turned inwards and gone as far as you can. Now you turn outwards from that point. And that's the beginning of the bodhisattva, bodhisattva path of the Mahayana. And But it's also the same in the Theravada, it's the same in the Christian, it's the same in any path. But 
that first you have to heal yourself. Physician, heal thyself. Right? Mm-hmm. First you have to heal yourself. Then is the point at which that having healed yourself, there is nothing left to do but to try to to do whatever you can for others. So. I wanted to mention last night we watched this film about these nuns in Tibet. And they were, they just did the most simplest, they talked about the most simplest uh, things of Buddhism that we are so lucky to have this human birth. That that in, and that uh, we uh, and the and the four noble truths. They talked about the four noble truths, the suffering. You know, just making that it was so clear to them, and that they spent their time uh, think, thinking about others, thinking about kindness to others, and and kindness and compassion, and and doing these prayers just just saying these prayers, saying these mantras, doing these prayers. And it just seemed to me like it was so inspiring that they just came to the very basic things that that uh, Buddhism is. What the, what the Buddha talked about, and what you always mention. And then just stick with that and, um, and then know that everybody else is you. And everything else is you. Trees and everything else—it's all mm-hmm. you. And they—they they just seemed so glowing. Their faces were shining. They were—they were so happy to be there, just being able to pray for everybody in the world. You mm-hmm. know, just from coming out. And when you're saying that mental, everything that we think everything that we say and everything that we do has its effects on everything else. If we know just aware of that and constantly try to make it the most positive thing that we can, it, it you know, then that's a healing thing in itself when you're not just concentrated on your own what you want and what you don't want and how sick you are and how terrible you are and, you know, all that kind of thing. But be so grateful to be alive, to be human in a human body, mm-hmm. being able to do this, these things. This is a great quote I heard yesterday. It was, uh, you're a human being alive, lower your standards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you but if you realize <laughs> everybody else is you, if you pray for them, isn't that kind of selfish? <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, once you realize the higher self, you get to practice higher selfishness. <laughs> higher selfishness. That's good. 